There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Pray with me. <clears throat> it is a privilege, Lord, to be able to hear from your word today. I just pray, Father, you know where we're all at. We're all in different stages with you, Lord. I just pray that wherever we are, you would speak to us today through your word. Draw us closer to yourself. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes life can be confusing. Little Tommy could not have been any more excited when his mother said, You're going to have a baby brother or a baby sister. He was so thrilled that he told his kindergarten teacher. He told her again the next day. In fact, every day without fail, he told her he was going to have a baby brother or a baby sister. One day his mother said, Tommy, come here for a minute. As she placed his hand on her stomach, she said, do you feel that? That's your baby brother or your baby sister kicking. Tommy smiled faintly and walked away. The next day when he went to school, he didn't tell his teacher he was going to have a baby brother or a baby sister. He didn't bring it up the second, the third, or the fifth day either. Finally, after a couple of weeks, his teacher asked him, Tommy, you haven't been talking about the baby that's coming. Aren't you excited anymore? It was then that Tommy burst into tears. The baby's not coming, he cried. My mommy ate it. (laughs) Well, like Tommy, we often don't understand things very well. Oh, this is awful, we think, failing to realize that God may be up to something wonderful. And even though David has blown it and has been living with the enemy, our account this morning is going to be about God's faithfulness. You see, like David, there are times when we blow it and go back to the world of our flesh and get ourselves in all kinds of jams. Where I like that strawberry who said, Now look at the jam I've got myself into. But when that happens, the Lord will still, are you ready for this? Preserve us. I'm really sorry. Uh, Anyway, we see that even those times that we mess up, God doesn't walk away or turn away from us. He is always faithful, even those times when we are faithless. Verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphek, while the Israelites were camping by the string, which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines were proceeding on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were proceeding on the rear with Achish. Then the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel? 
who has been with me these days, or rather these years, and I found no fault in him from the day he deserted to me to this day. Sometimes a person will say, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall. They mean that they would like to have been present to hear or see what happened at a certain place or time. Well, by divine inspiration, we are allowed to become a virtual fly on the wall of of this Philistine tent. The tent in which the Philistine commanders hold a heated discussion with Achish. Now, going over to the Philistines seemed like such a smart move to David in the early part of chapter 27. After all, he managed to safely get out of Saul's reach and succeeded at ingratiating himself with both the Philistines and the Israelites. The problem is, it's hard to live as a good Jew and a good Philistine at the same time. But that's what David is trying to do. He's trying to keep both plates spinning at the same time. But now, in a brief moment of time, David finds himself caught in the middle with no apparent way out of this. It's at this point that help comes from a very unlikely source, a group of Philistine commanders. Sometimes we can become so foolish that God in his mercy and grace will have to send in our enemy to set us straight and keep us out of trouble. But these commanders are not happy. They let Saul know exactly what they thought about David and his men. They had the subtlety of a stomach pump. They asked, what are these Hebrews doing here? They don't fit in with us. Lot knew this. If you remember when he chose to live in Sodom, Abraham had given Lot the choice to where to live because they had too much livestock between them, and so they needed to separate. Genesis says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, but it was well watered everywhere. That's the problem with sin, isn't it? Initially, all we see are the supposed good things and all the big fun we're going to have. But eventually that fun wears off. And sorrow arises we realize we just simply don't fit into this world anymore. The Bible says, Lot was oppressed by what he saw and heard while living among them and felt his righteous soul being tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Like David, Lot knew that he really didn't fit in. Look, any time a pagan says to you, what in the world are you doing here, you know you have dropped the ball in a big way. I had that happen once. It was over 20 years ago, but I still remember it today. I've got your attention now. At any rate, when I was in the Air Force stationed in Germany, like David, I decided to live with the Philistines for a few months. So I was in this hotel room drinking with my buddies and minding my own business. When out of nowhere, a guy came up to me and said, I thought you were supposed to be a Christian. What was he saying? You don't fit in here with us. You shouldn't be here. There are few things as rebuking or as convicting as being rebuked by a Philistine. It was sort of like my own personal D-Day. Verse 4, please. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Make the man go back, that he may return to his place where you have assigned him. 
And do not let him go down to battle with us, or in the battle he may become an adversary to us. For with what could this man make himself acceptable to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of these men? Is this not David of whom they sing in the dances, saying, Saul is slain his thousands, and David is ten thousands? They were still talking about that song. It was the number one hit on Radio Philistine. Now, they knew all too well that the thousands they were talking about and the tens of thousands were Philistine casualties. They were infuriated by the ease of which Achish has accepted David into his trust. Now, this part is very interesting to me. What had originally gotten David into trouble with Saul? It was the same song that was sung. Now, think through this. The song that had been gotten David in trouble initially is the same song that God is going to use to save David from this greater trouble later on in his life. This teaches us that God is the great orchestrator and the master composer of the symphony of our lives. But with that said, there might be a song that is composed by him in our lives that we say, Oh no, that's awful. Why, oh Lord, are you allowing this to happen in my life. We may think this is a sour song. It's off key and it's out of tune. But down the road we find out it's the same song and those same things that ultimately will save us from something far worse. Verse 6. The naked called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been upright and you're going out and you're coming in with me and the armies are pleasing in my sight. For I have not found evil in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, you are not pleasing in the sight of the Lord's. Now therefore, return and go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. David said to Achish, But what have I done? And what have you found in your servant from the day when I came before you to this day, that I may not go out and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? But Achish replied to David, I know that you are pleasing in my sight like an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said he must not go up with us to the battle. Now then, arise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who have come with you. And as soon as you have risen early in the morning and have light, depart. So David arose early, he and his men, to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. One commentator I read wrote, there's, a little, there's more than a little humor in this scene. Achish stands there apologetically emphasizing how he thinks David should go with him in his campaign and extolling David's faithfulness, which he has no reason to extol. On the other hand, David, with disbelief on his face and an exasperation in his voice, protests rejection. He has no reason to protest. The, de- the deceived defends the deceiver, And the relieved disputes his relief. Now, if Achish would have known the truth, he would not have made this confident pronouncement. However, deceived as he was, he uttered a truth more profound than he realized. Because David was without fault in a sense that Achish did not understand. You see, he had not betrayed King Saul or the nation of Israel. As their future king, his righteousness and faithfulness were still intact. So the king gave the message to David, who continued his deception by appearing to be deeply hurt by the order. 
Basically, David got an honorable discharge. Now, this is great acting on David's part. I'm talking Academy Award, I like to thank the little people kind of acting. But, of course, we know that David has already done a lot of acting around Achish in the past. If you remember, way back in chapter 21, he acted crazy, clawing at the gate and allowing spittle to fall into his beard. And now David is once again acting like he really wants to fight against the nation of Israel, which we know he doesn't want to do. By the way, as an aside, anytime we are out of God's will and playing and living with the enemy, we are going to have to do some acting because we really just don't fit in anymore. Why? Well, as I alluded to earlier, if a person has been truly converted, the Lord has ruined them from enjoying the pleasures of sin ever again. Or we may dabble in them from time to time, but they will never satisfy us like they did before the Holy Spirit took up residence in our lives. And that's a very good thing. Furthermore, the Philistines thought they were being prudent in sending David back home. But though they were ignorant of it, they were merely the instruments God was using to exact David from his compromised position. What does that teach us? In every situation, God is sovereign. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Now, that is clear in this chapter, although it is hidden from us. You see, God's involvement in these events is not explicitly mentioned in the text. I think that reflects the nature of his providence going on in the background. Often his sovereign will is achieved in ways that are unseen by us. Alan Redpath writes, Although this man was out of God's blessing and in the wrong company, The Lord was quietly sending reinforcements that he would need for future battles. The Lord never allowed the lapse of his servant into godlessness to divert him from his eternal purposes for David. Now, do I I believe that is true today? I most certainly do. Romans 8.29 reminds us, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Did you hear those words? Called, predestined, justified, and glorified. They are all in the past tense of accomplishment. So although Satan may trip us up and put us on the sidelines... And even though sometimes we feel like we're marching in the devil's army, God silently will work in the background along his lines of his eternal purposes. I hope that brings comfort and encouragement for someone who may feel weak and helpless this morning. Look at verse 1 of chapter 30. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. Everything seems to be going great until once again the Amalekites show up. 
What kind of people are these Amalekites? This is Deuteronomy 25:17. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt. How he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at the rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. They were a bunch of low-life cowards who would pick off the weak and old like a pack of hyenas. The word Amalekite means dweller of the valley. Every time the Amalekites are seen in Scripture, they're an illustration of the flesh warring against the people of God. That is why God said to Moses, You shall war against Amalek from generation to generation. In other words, the battle against our fleshly nature is going to be an ongoing one. Now, whether it's due to the fleshly tendencies within us or to the external enemies that seek to pull us down, we can all count on a fight from Amalek. Right when you think you have it all figured out, another generation of Amalekites will rise up to do battle with you. Now, in verse 2, that verb carried them off is literally drove them off. And it paints the picture of animals being driven off by their herdsmen. David and his men find the city destroyed, and they deduce that their families have been taken alive, presumably because there was no signs of them being killed. But now the fact that they were not killed should not be understood as a humanitarian virtue on behalf of the Amalekites. For these raiders, the captured women and children were booty, most likely to be sold as slaves. But here's the thing for us this morning. Though the Lord was gracious to deliver David and his men from participating in the battle, he isn't obligated to step in and extricate his people from situations caused by their own sinful decisions. We reap what we sow. God may deliver us, but we may have to pay a price for our rebellion. Now, the name Ziklag literally means winding road. Life is like that, isn't it? You think you have everything straightened out and set to go with smooth sailing, but suddenly you find a curve you weren't counting on or a pothole in the middle of the street. Welcome to life. It's a very long and arduous road. And that's the way it's always going to be this side of heaven. But one day when we're finally home, the streets will be straight, Isaiah 40, verse 4, and paved with gold, Revelations 21, 21. Then and only then will there be no more winding roads and no more potholes in life. But often I think we're like Irma Bombeck's little boy who after his first day of school came home and announced with great relief, boy, I'm glad that's over with. He thought school only lasted one day. He didn't realize he had at least 12 years left. So too with us. How often do we think, I'm glad that's over with, not realizing that there are more troubles down the road. I'm not trying to depress you this morning. I'm just being upfront and honest with you. Listen to how Peter puts it, 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing was happening to you. What's Peter saying? 
Trials and troubles are the norm for the Christian life, not the exception. No matter what any of those clowns on the TV may tell you. Verse 3, please. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire. And their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David's two wives had been taken captive. Ahinoam the Jezreelitist and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. For David and his men, the trip from Aphek to Ziklag must have been lighthearted, something akin to the mood of a busload of college students on spring break. I can imagine the relief that David and his men must feel as they leave the ranks of the Philistines and turn back towards Ziklag. They have come through this awkward situation with honor rather than with shame. Achish still thinks highly of David, and the Philistine commanders still seem to fear him. They do not have to do battle with their fellow Israelites, and neither do they have to turn against the Philistines. They have been rescued. No lives have been lost due to fighting. All they have to do is return to Ziklag and enjoy spending a little time with their families. And yet this may be one of the darkest days of David's life as his men draw near to Ziklag. They begin to see and perhaps smell smoke. A growing sense of dread begins to fall on the small army. We can only imagine what they saw. The puzzled looks become looks of alarm and then of despair. One commentator said, When we wander from God, we cannot perceive what tidings await us upon our return. That's true. Whenever we wander from the path of God, we can never be sure what will be meeting us when we finally do come back. And please keep in mind, these are tough, rugged men. These are the kind of men who can live in caves for years and to whom combat and hand-to-hand combat is a way of life. These aren't the kind of men who are in touch with their feminine side. And yet, as they turn that corner and all 600 sets of eyes fall on the smoldering ruins, to a man they begin to weep uncontrollably. It says they wept until they could weep no longer. Have you ever been there? Someone said that tears are the blood of the soul. I believe that. But it's in those great valleys that God forms some of his greatest saints. I'll go verse 6 with me. <clears throat> Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his son and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Back in those days, if the people didn't like a leader, they just threw rocks at him. I guess I have it easy. Now the people just drive you crazy. It says, David was greatly distressed. That's a verb that means he was pressed into a tight corner the way that a potter would press clay into a mold. But David knew what he had to do. Everything looked grim. But he chose to encourage himself in the Lord. How? We can see the answer in Psalm 42, where David writes, 
Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you so distressed within me? Take hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Like David, I can be depressed, discouraged, and despairing continually, or I can say, Why are you this way, soul? Hope in God. Offer thanks to him and give praise to him. As we pause in our study in this dark moment of David's life, let us reflect on what has happened and what we can learn from it. The first lesson we learn or are reminded of is that sin's consequences are often delayed, but they are inevitable. What we read in our text this morning is a result of a very bad decision on David's part made over a year before. It was his decision to leave the land of Israel and flee to Achish in the land of the Philistines for safety and protection. Second, we should see from our text that the adverse consequences of our own sins extend beyond ourselves and often causes pain and suffering to those that we love the most. Now, I'm sure that David probably thought he was acting in his family's best interest by taking them to the land of the Philistines. But by doing so, what was wrong for David was also wrong for his family. Now, we know the the incident eventually turns out right, but during those days, his family members were terrorized and traumatized. A high price was being paid by them. Third, while our text underscores the high price of sin, it also gives us hope. It reminds us that God will provide a way of escape. Let us also note the contrast here at the end that the author draws between David and Saul. Both Saul and David had gotten themselves into some serious situations and ones that appear to be hopeless. Both Saul and David are deeply distressed, so much so that both of them have very little strength. But when Saul goes out, he does so at night. But when David departs from the Philistines, he does it in the morning. It's as though the writer wants us to see the differences between Saul and David, even in the midst of their similarities. And the last part of verse 6 gives us a significant clue. Not only the difference between David and Saul, but as to the source of their difference. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. The Moffat translation puts it this way. David relied on the eternal his God and took courage. Saul goes off to consult a witch. David strengthens himself in the Lord his God. And there, my friends, is the difference. Saul never seems to repent, never has a heart for God. David does have a heart for God, and we will see him repent. Now, David, like most of us, finds that many of his turning points are during times of suffering and sorrow in the dark times of life. But in this dark day of David's life, when he has no one else to turn to, he turns to God. And the Lord kept David from doing something he regretted all the days of his life, something that would change not only his own personal history, but the history of the entire nation. God stepped in. Even though David had failed, 
even though he was in enemy territory, God steps in and rescues him out of his mercy. I can get myself in all sorts of predicaments and in all kinds of jams. But even when I make a mess of things, God doesn't walk away or turn away from me. He steps up. He moves in. He saves me because he is faithful even when I am completely faithless. Now, as I close, I trust God, not because I have my act together or because I know a bunch of Bible verses. I trust him for one reason. He has proven himself over the years to be trustworthy. And the greatest thing we can give God is our trust. When we say, it's not about how worthy or worthless that I am. It's not about how good or bad I might be. It's all about you, Lord. No matter whether I'm faithful or faithless, good or bad, sad or glad, you do exactly what you promise to do. You never leave me or forsake me. You cause all things to work together for the good in my life. You draw near to me when I draw near to you. You answer me when I call. Surely you have proven yourself to be trustworthy. We often say, Lord, I love you. But I wonder if it wouldn't be more meaningful to say, Lord, I trust you. I think it thrills the heart of the Father to be trusted. So this morning, may the Lord cause you to be one who trusts in him, whether or not where you should be, ought to be, or want to be. There is one thing I can promise you on the authority of God's word. He is trustworthy. And Lord, that is our only hope. There is no plan B, Lord. This is what you offer us. And we cling to it like a dying man. I pray, Lord, if anyone in here does not know you, you would convict them by your Holy Spirit and draw them to the life that is truly life. For those of us, Lord, who are Christians and maybe struggling with some kind of sin, Lord, or maybe we're just tired, or maybe we feel great today and living in victory, I pray that whatever situation we find ourselves in, that you would draw us even closer and just reveal yourself to us in a new and a fresh and a very real way. We ask in your name. Amen. This is our first Sunday of the month. Ask our Pastor John and Elder Haynes to come up and serve communion to us.